I want to start this morning by thinking about the command to be happy. So if you're new to church or maybe if you've grown up in church, you tend to think of Christians as joyless people at times. As you were growing up, did you think that holiness and grumpiness go hand in hand? Did you think that, as some have said of the Puritans, that the mark of a true Christian is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy? Or, to ask it a different way, do you really think that joy, happiness, and even laughter are essential parts of the Christian life? I hope you do. After all, we're commanded to be joyful. We're commanded to have joy. Delight yourself in the Lord, Psalm 37 says. Rejoice in the Lord, Philippians 3 says. Be joyful always, 1 Thessalonians 5 says. So for some of us, it might be new or a good reminder to hear that joy is actually a command in the Bible. But my guess is for many of us here, maybe for most of us here, we've been influenced enough by men like C.S. Lewis and especially John Piper to know that joy is not just allowed, but it's actually commanded in the Bible. We're commanded to be happy in God. But like every other command in the Bible, the command to have joy, the command to rejoice in the Lord is easy to say, sometimes hard to do. And like every other command in the Bible, we can't separate this command to rejoice in the Lord from the good news of what God has already done for us. So this morning, I want to see, look at together, the centrality of the gospel, the centrality of God's saving work for our joy in Psalm 126. I want to reflect on God's past, present, and future acts of salvation for for his people and hopefully walk away from here with greater joy in God and a stronger foundation for ever-increasing joy in him. So let's look at Psalm 126 together. It's about in the middle of your Bible, the 126th Psalm. I'll read it for us, beginning with verse 1. Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream... Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Let me pray for us one more time, and we'll dig into this psalm together. Father, we are so grateful that you are the king who is reigning, that you have defeated sin and death in the grave as we celebrated as followers of Jesus last week. And as we continue to celebrate that on another Sunday, on the first day of the week, as we celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive, I pray that we would be filled with joy in him. 
not a trite, superficial, candy-coated joy, but a deep-seated, lasting, eternal joy. So would you drive that deeper into our hearts as we look at the scriptures together? Help us all to see Jesus more clearly, to treasure him, to be transformed more and more into his image, and to walk away from here filled with hope in him. We pray it through Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So Psalm 126, it begins with a reflection on God's past saving work for his people. What has God done for his people in the past? And and if we think about the psalm in its historical context, in the Old Testament, in the nation of Israel, we have to ask, when in Israel's history did God restore the fortunes of Zion? In other words, when did God work in an astonishing way to save his people? If you've spent much time reading reading the Old Testament, you probably remember that one of the first acts of God's salvation, one of the clearest ways he worked to save his people was the Exodus itself, right? After centuries in Egypt, God delivered his people from slavery and eventually brought them into the land he had promised to their ancestors, to Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. But if you move forward, the other great saving act of God in the Old Testament is when he brought them out of the exile in Babylon. See, for centuries after the Exodus, Israel lived in the land, but they neglected God's covenant. For years and years, they neglected the law. And so finally, God sent his people into exile in Babylon. But after 70 years there, God again delivered his people and brought them back to the place he had promised for them. So this had a lot of parallels to the Exodus, right? These two great saving acts, the exile and the Exodus, they both start with EX, but but there's other parallels as well, right? God God sent his people into a foreign land, and he brought them out of that land, so much so that theologians often call it the return from exile, the second Exodus, right? So both of these acts of salvation are tied closely together. God delivered his people from their enemies and brought them back to the place he had promised them. So as we think about that, in light of this psalm, what was their response? And this is probably pointing more towards the exile. You know, looking at the exile through the lens of the exodus, but seeing that God worked to save his people. And their response was that it was almost too good to be true. It's like a dream. I don't know if you guys remember your dreams very often. I, I'm not a guy who remembers his dreams that much. The only, In fact, the only dream I remember in the recent past is I was going bald and had long hair. It's kind of like a Hulk Hogan thing. But that's about all I can remember about it a few weeks ago. So I'm not the best guy to illustrate dreams. But I I think we can all think of times when we can't believe that we're not dreaming. So for many of us men, it's when we stood at the front of a church and looked down the aisle and saw our soon-to-be wives come in the back door, and you think, I can't believe that she is marrying me. Or, Or maybe you get into a school that you never thought you'd get accepted at, or or you get a job that you've been working and waiting for for years. 
Or maybe it's something as simple as sitting in the backyard with friends or family, enjoying a good meal, watching the sunset, and thinking, this is way more than I deserve. It's those moments where you're just thankful and overwhelmed. So as you consider what God had been given, or what Israel had been given by God, the holy, perfect God, he created all things, called this small nation in the middle of nowhere to know him and to follow him. Even though they kept turning away from him again and again and again, he kept working to save them, to keep his promises. Once it sunk in that that God had actually done that, that God had actually worked in history for them, their mouths were filled with laughter. When they saw the faithfulness of God and their salvation, they couldn't help but singing, shouting, laughing in disbelief. This isn't the kind of laughing like if we're watching Dumb, or D- Dumb and Dumber or something like that. No, it's, it's not even the kind of laughter that comes when you know, maybe we'll get a promotion at work or, or our team wins the World Series or something like that and we laugh just because we're so happy. That's, not, that's trite laughter compared to this. You know, as, as I think of times I've experienced this kind of laughter in my life, the, the thing that comes to mind is when I saw my sons for the first time. I have three sons. If you have children, you probably know what I'm talking about. There's this kind of inexpressible joy filled with tears where all you can do is laugh and cry and shout for joy. And so that's the first response of the Israelites when they, they saw God saving acts. Unbelief followed by inexpressible joy. But it, it didn't stop there, just with a, this joyful moment, and it just stopped. Look at the end of verse 2. What happened next? Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Notice there's a shift here from we to they. When I first started working on this sermon, I, I thought the, the process was God's saving acts lead to joy among his people, and then his people proclaim what God has done, right? So God works, we see it, we proclaim it. But there's another step here. They said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. So who's speaking here? The nations, right? The, this is the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the surrounding nations. They saw what God had done for his people. This caused them to sit up, to take notice. So when God works to save his people, the nations will notice. They'll see God is doing something. The results will be undeniable. In Israel, this was pretty clear. Through the plagues, the Red Sea, the works of God, and bringing his people into the promised land, there could be no doubt that God was at work. Then through the return from exile, the preservation and restoration of the people of God, there could be no doubt that God had delivered his people. And so in this psalm, we see what happens when God works to save his people. Astonishment, inexpressible joy, and then undeniable salvation. But today, in 2014, as we look back at God's saving works in the past, we can't stop with the exodus 
and the return from exile. Those were wonderful acts of salvation, but they were only pointing forward to a greater salvation to come. When this psalm was written, it was still in the future, but for us today, we can look back at the greatest work of salvation at the cross. At the cross, God worked to deliver his people from the greatest enemies of all, from sin and death and the devil. When we understand the depth of what Christ accomplished at the cross, then we should see the same process at work in our lives, in our church, as we do in this psalm. First, when you understand the depth of your sin and where you would be if God had left you to yourself, you should be absolutely blown away by the grace of God. Not many of us really understand God's grace at it the depth of God's grace. We sing songs about his grace being deeper than the ocean, wider than the sea, but do we really understand it? We tend to think we bring something to the table, even just something little, and then God does enough to get us the rest of the way. But what does the psalm say? What is, the Lord has done great things for us. Not Israel and God together. They make such a great team. He has done great things for us. When the depth of God's kindness finally begins to sink in, and in some ways this will never happen, but we, when we begin to grasp what God has done for us, then our only response should be unspeakable joy, true laughter. The good news should make us shout for joy. Shout that we cannot believe what God has done for us. So that, we started talking about the command to be happy. That should be the response to the good news. When we think about what God has done for us, how can we help but be happy in God? And this doesn't mean we walk around with some kind of frozen smile stuck to our face. and You ignore real suffering in the world. What it means is when, when suffering comes, and for all of us it will come, then you can meet it with true joy. Not because you're a sadist, but because you know that your greatest problem has been solved. And as that happens, as you meet suffering with joy, the result will be the same for us as it was for the people of God so many years ago. When our neighbors and friends look at us as individuals, but especially as a church, then they should be left with no doubt that God is at work, that God has delivered us. When God intervenes and saves his people, it shouldn't leave any, anyone wondering what has happened. When Israel moved from bondage to freedom, from slavery to salvation, it wasn't hard to see what had happened to them. They were free. They were set free. God had brought them into the place he had promised them. And the main point of God's promised place is not a specific piece of property in the Middle East, but the privilege of living in God's presence as his redeemed people. And so when God redeems us, we will live in his presence. We will be joyfully aware that God is among us, that he is working. We'll see transformed lives and in in, we'll see the lives of our brothers and sisters being changed. 
We'll see him answering prayers that have no explanation apart from him. We'll attempt strange things like planting new churches and going new places and starting neighborhood ministries or moving across oceans to go where people have never heard the gospel, things that only his presence among us can explain. And your city, your neighborhood, will sit up and take notice. Maybe not at first, maybe not in a week or two weeks or even a year or two, but they'll eventually say something is going on in that congregation. Something's going on in that church. They probably won't say anything to you, especially at first. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. That's not the rubbish I'm talking about. That's not a biblical philosophy of evangelism. Look at verse 3. As the unmistakable work of God transforms us, not without hiccups, not without ups and downs, but as there's real transformation, slowly and surely, we can turn around then and quote verse 3 to them. The Lord has done great things for us. That is why we are glad. So remember what God did for his people in the Exodus, in the return from exile, and most importantly, at the cross and resurrection. Think back at how God has brought you into that saving work if you know Jesus, how he's called you to, your, to himself if you know Jesus. So ask yourself, do I understand the depth of my redemption? Do I see the astonishing work that Jesus has accomplished for me? If so, then it's transforming effects in your life should be unmistakable. Others will see what God has done for you. So do you believe that the Lord has done great things for us? If you do, every part of you should be being transformed. The gospel should impact your whole person. Your emotional makeup should change even. Now I'm not... Uh, a cheerleader. Actually, you know, we're all wired a little differently. Last year, for the first time in my life, I was a season ticket holder at any sport at University of Hawaii football. Season tickets were only $75 for the whole season. So what, what's a, a one game at uh, a Badgers football game? It's probably more than $75. Hundred bucks. So I so I got six games for less than that. So I was excited. I mean, it was fun. We got a guy in our church who's on the football team, so it's fun to kind of support him. Um, but at one game, me and a friend were sitting there. They weren't great seats. They were only seventy-five dollars for all six games. But we're sitting there watching the pep dancers. I don't know if the Badgers have these kind of weird guys. No offense if somebody here is a Badger pep dancer. <laughs> like I said, everybody's wired a little differently. And my friend turns to me and says, you know, these guys are dancing. I'm not going to even attempt to do what they're doing. But, you know, some hip-hop music and they're dancing. My friend turns to me and says, how much money would it take for you to do that? (laughs) And I thought, I said, I don't even think I'm capable of doing that. So none of us can be, most of us can't be 
college football pep dancers. But if the depth of what God has done never brings me to the point of tears or joyful laughter, then, then I think something's wrong. A great God has done great things for us. We can be free, the freest of all people to laugh, to, to express our joy in him. G.K. Chesterton said, laughing unfreezes pride and unwinds secrecy. It makes men forget themselves in the presence of something greater than themselves. God is so much greater than us, but he has done great things for us. Don't be afraid to express joy in the great things God has done for you. So, laughter and joy in God should be a regular part of our lives in some way. But, but that doesn't just happen at, when we look back at what God has done. In, in fact, as we look at God's past deliverance and experience his grace right now in the midst of suffering, it actually should remind us that the best is still to come. Rejoicing in God's past deliverance should actually bring more longing for future salvation. And that's what's happening here in this psalm. So as we move into the second part of the psalm, we see a prayer for future salvation and the increased experience of life in God's presence. Look at verse 4. So here's another shift. The Lord has done amazing things to bring Israel out of captivity. But when they arrived in the promised land after the exodus, after the exile, Everything wasn't just like sunshine and puppy dogs and rainbows, was it? Think about the history of Israel if you know it. The enemies of God were still in the land, oppressing them, opposing them. Their sin kept them from perfectly obeying God's law. And the suffering continued. After the exodus, God's people kept turning their backs on him, and this led to the exile. After the exile, God's people kept trying to find their righteousness in their own obedience, but they were still under the rule of Greece and then Rome and under the sentence of sin. So even after God's great saving acts in the Old Testament, they were still looking forward to salvation in the future. So they prayed in verse 4, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. So if you're familiar with Palestine or Bible geography, the Negev is the southern part of the, the land. It's a desert region. It was back then. It still is today, a dry place. You won't find many streams or much running water there. In fact, the word Negev, it was a specific region, but it eventually came to be just a general term. That means a dry desert place, a place where you won't expect to find much life, a place where death reigns. So the prayer of the psalmist is that God would bring life where all we can see is death. We've seen him do it in the past, and we believe that he will do it again. When Israel was in Egypt, they had no earthly reason to expect they would be delivered from their captivity. 
They're a tiny nation under the thumb of one of the most powerful civilizations in history to that point. Same thing when they were in captivity in Babylon. No one would have argued that it's inevitable that they're going to return to the promised land. And when Christ was on the cross, almost none of those watching could have imagined that in three days he would rise from the dead. See, all of God's saving acts for his people in the past and for us as individuals today, most of all in the resurrection of Jesus, this all gives us confidence that God can and will bring new life. Our God is in the business of taking what is dead and lifeless and bringing new life. In the garden at creation, God breathed life into Adam. In Ezekiel 37, there's a pile of dry bones, and God says, these bones will live. He brings life. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul says in Ephesians 2, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together in Christ. So when we look to the future, we should have every expectation that God will give life where all we see today is death. Like the psalmist here, our experience of God's salvation in the past should lead us to plead for life where all we see is death. If you have a sibling, a child, a friend, a co-worker who seems as hard and as bitter as possible toward the good news, then be encouraged. God can bring life where we see nothing but death. If you have a relationship that seems hopeless, remember God brings life where we only see death. If you're waiting for God to do something and it hasn't happened, you're waiting for years and your hope is all but dead, remember that God is the one who brings new life. When you look at the world you see suffering and pain and death. Remember, this is not the end. The six o'clock news is not the end of the story. We can take hope that God will bring life in the short term in our restored relationships. But most of all, we can hope in God's promise to restore and renew the world itself. For those who are in Christ, there is a new creation our God is the one who brings streams into the desert. So God brings life where all we can see is death. And then along with this, we should expect God to bring joy, shouting and harvest, where all we can see now are tears, weeping and hardship. Look at verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. See, like the Israelites singing this psalm, we can look back on God's past saving acts and we can think of the joy that that brought. But our present experience is so often marked with pain. In this life, we will all sow with tears, won't we? So much of our labor will be accompanied by tears. 
when we love others, our love will often be met with coldness and opposition. We will pray and pray and pray with genuine faith, and God won't answer our prayers the way we expect him to. When we take the gospel to others, we will often go out with weeping. We will send missionaries to unreached peoples, and they will be persecuted and killed. But we can be sure that our painful investment now in our neighborhoods, in the city, in the nations, will bring shouts of joy and a harvest for God one day. See, our suffering in these things is not simply suffering for its own sake. John Piper is helpful here. Probably many of you know that he has prepared people, many people, to suffer well. He wrote this. Suffering in the path of Christian obedience with joy, because the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life, is the clearest display of the worth of God in our lives. Therefore, faith-filled suffering is essential in this world for the most intense, authentic worship. So for the the kind of worship that will make us laugh with joy, faith-filled suffering is essential. When we are most satisfied with God in suffering, he will be most glorified with us in our worship. Our problem is not styles of music. Our problem is styles of life. When we embrace more affliction for the worth of Christ, there will be more fruit in the worship of Christ. That's why suffering, sowing and suffering brings a harvest with joy. So if you're in a season of pain, think back on God's saving work in your life and look forward to what he will do through that suffering. When we're looking at a person or a situation or a relationship that seems hopeless, remember the work of God for his people, both at the cross where he brought life, where the only reasonable expectation was death, and in your life, if you know Jesus, he has brought life where the only reasonable expectation, where the only just expectation is death and hell. And then look to the future and anticipate what God will do in your church, in the city. I always think of Acts 18 when Paul was at Corinth. And and God told him, go on preaching because he had many people in that city. So in the same way, you and I can proclaim the gospel in our neighborhoods, in our cities, even in the face of suffering, because we have believed that God has many people here. We can look to the future with expectation that our suffering, our hardship now will produce joy and laughter. I believe, I really believe that, that some of the people that might mock you today or this week for your faith will one day sit in this room with you as your brothers and sisters and take communion with you. Do you believe that will happen? I think it will. God will do it. Talk about loud shouts of joy. So look forward to God's saving work in your church. If he saved you, he could save anybody. If he saved me, he could save anybody. And don't be afraid to go out with weeping 
in the face of that. So it's not just our anticipation of the work of God in, in the church that will give us hope right now, but like I said, God will make all things new. The world will be made new. Heaven and earth will be one. one. The, the, the new heavens and the new earth will come, and God will reign forever. If you really believe that, one day we will stand before him. Think about that. He, he will wipe away every tear from our eye, and we will know what it means to laugh in that day. So John Piper has said, one more Piper quote, I don't always have so much Piper in my sermons, but when you're talking about joy, it's hard to avoid him. Piper said, if you live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard, your risks will be high, and your joy will be full. So as you meditate on Psalm 126, what dry places might God turn into a river flowing with life are in your life right now? What hard place is he calling you to toil in? What harvest, joy, and laughter will he bring through the suffering of laboring in that place? Meditate on that. God doesn't want us to live lives of joyless, dispassionate, disinterested benevolence. He's called us to dive into life and the world he's created, to enjoy his gifts to the fullest. But when we do this, we often find that our experience and our relationships leave us hurting, leave us hungering for more, even in the best of our relationships. But God's saving acts, most of all the cross and resurrection have reconciled us to God so we can experience joy right now. We can look forward to increasing joy in this life and long for an ever-increasing happiness in God that we will experience forever. And the foundation, the model of all of this is Jesus himself. In his life and his death, he sows in tears. In his suffering, he goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing. But in his resurrection and in his reign, he reigns with shouts of joy. And in his return, he will come home to reign forever with shouts of joy, bringing an eternal harvest of those he purchased with his death along with him. So if you don't know Jesus, if your heart doesn't sing when you think about that, and if your heart is not welling up with joy in him when you consider what he has done for you, I want to plead with you today. Turn to him. Look to Jesus and be saved. In his death and resurrection, he's the ultimate example and foundation of suffering that reaps an eternal harvest of joy. Through Jesus, we experience joy in God. Through Jesus, we find out what it means to laugh, to rejoice in God to its fullest. It's only through Jesus that we can fulfill the command to rejoice in the Lord. 
It's only through Jesus that our joy is made full. So let's look to him. Let's follow him, even in the path of suffering, because we can be confident that on the the other side of that suffering, there's a harvest filled with joy beyond anything we can imagine. That's how we obey the command to be happy. It's not just working it up in ourselves, but it's seeing what Jesus has done, clinging to that and looking forward to all he will do. Rejoice in the Lord because he has done great things for us. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that we would look to Jesus who has gone before us in suffering and in joy. I have no doubt that there are many in this room, maybe most in this room who are facing pain right now. So in the midst of that, help us to remember what you have done and what you will do. I pray that our joy would not be in light things, that our joy would not be in trivial things, but that our joy would be in the greatest truths, and we find the deepest joy in those truths. Most of all, that you, Father, have sent your Son in spirit. You have given us life. So thank you for this joy that we can have in you. I pray that it wouldn't be something that we just talk about, that it would be something that transforms our lives as we think about the great things that you have done for us. I pray that we would be filled with hope in all that you will do. We pray it in the name of our King who has conquered sin and death. Amen.